In the Gospel of Mark, we are now just days away from the crucifixion of Jesus, and we know it's about on Tuesday. Some scholars say Wednesday. I would argue that it would probably be Tuesday here in the last week of his earthly ministry before he goes to the cross. He's in the temple ministering to all those that are coming to him for various needs and reasons. And there are all kinds of religious groups that are coming against him, and they're just irate. They're mad at Jesus, or they're fed up with his ministry for a number of reasons. So they're trying to trap him through public questions that could cause division or his arrest. In fact, they don't even care what may happen to him on the other end of this. They just want to get rid of him so they can go back to business as usual. And we're going to find here in our text today a group that is called the Sadducees that we haven't necessarily encountered in the same way. And they're going to ask Jesus about the issue of resurrection. So here's what the Bible says in verse 18, chapter 12. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up the children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also." In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all, seven, uh, she, for all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. In 2014, there was a large social study that, uh, survey that was conducted by three major universities including 58,000 people. And they asked a lot of questions, but one of the questions that they asked them that's relevant for us today is, do you believe in life after death? 80% of them said yes, even though many of them did not have a basis for saying yes. And just so that we know, this is 7% higher than 1972, where it was 73% said yes. And so there was an increase now, in Canada, they did a similar study in 2018 where 66% of those that were asked also said yes. Now, we're very familiar with um, growing ideologies that are empowering people to believe that there is nothing beyond death. And that would be like nihilism or atheism. That is growing in our country, actually in the countries of the world but we know as we just look back into history that almost every people group, every civilization has believed in some form of life after death, regardless of what that might be. But the truth is for us today, as we think about resurrection, we think about and focus on life after death, this issue is relevant for every single one of us today because 100% of all people are going to die. Now, I know that's not a welcome to church today, but 
And if that's the case, if 100% of us are going to die, then what happens after death should be more relevant than most of the stuff that we talk about because all of us are going to be impacted by whatever it is that does happen. Now, Jesus was a teacher who talked about resurrection and he talked about life after death far more than any that they were accustomed to in the first century and really more than any other religion today. He would say things like, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, those that believe in me, they will have eternal life. He said in John, he said, though you die, yet shall you live if you believe in me. He would talk about this again and again, and the religious leaders did not like it, particularly the Sadducees, because they did not believe in any form of resurrection. So while they're disturbed, they come to Jesus and they ask this question. And I want to summarize the question today. Here's what it is. How is the resurrection possible? That's what I believe that they're asking. Now, we've looked a lot at the Pharisees, and I've talked to you about them extensively. We have not looked at the Sadducees, so I need to talk to you about who they are and what they believe. So just a quick overview of who they are. The Sadducees were one of the most prominent, powerful religious groups in the first century uh, as it pertained to Judaism. They were aristocrats, which means they were the party of the wealthy and the elite. They were all from high priestly families or leading lay families. They were in charge of the temple and all of its services and its concessions, which means they were the ones responsible for bringing the marketplace into the court of the Gentiles. They were profiting at least 20% off of all of the things that were happening. They were the ones that, that were they were the ones that were making money from this. So when Jesus messed with their money, they had a problem like many do today. When you mess with people's money, they don't tend to like you. And so they were angry at Jesus. They were very different from the Pharisees in beliefs, practices, wealth. They were a lot smaller in number. The Pharisees were more prevalent during that time. All the high priests and the chief priests were Sadducees. So as we look at the rest of the book of Mark, we're going to meet the chief priests and the high priests here in the coming days. They were very pro-Rome, and the temple was their domain. They were nervous of an insurrection, and here's why. If there was an insurrection of some kind, then Rome was going to punish everyone for it, which means that they would, deeply be, they would be deeply affected by however that panned out. So Jesus was a problem for them. Now, their theology is also considerably different. So I'm going to contrast what they believed to the Pharisees because what the Pharisees believed and taught was predominant in first century Judaism. The Sadducees did not believe in any spirits beyond human beings. So they did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. They rejected the entirety of the oral law. That's the Mishnah. Those are the additional commands. Mark talks about this in other places. He calls them the traditions, the traditions of the fathers. And so these are things that they wholeheartedly reject. They also only accept the Torah or the first five books of Moses as authoritative for Jewish life and practice. And they did not believe in any form of life after death. In fact, the historian, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Sadducees were known to be harsh 
And they were also known to believe that once a person died, their soul would cease to exist. Today, in some forms of theology, we call this annihilationism. So that's where they were. Once you die, you cease to exist every single part of you. They did not believe that the Torah spoke of an afterlife. They believed that it was actually a Pharisee man-made doctrine. And so contrasting their beliefs to the Pharisees is kind of all we can do because they didn't have a lot of substantive teaching. And I would actually liken them today to progressive Christianity. I wish I had more time to break that down, but their doctrines were such that it was like a cup that had holes in it. It just cannot hold water. Whatever it was that they believed just was not much. Now, listen to this. In 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. After that, you will not read any history about the Sadducees. They pretty much were done away after that. Pharisees were morphed into Judaism or Orthodox Judaism in an Orthodox fashion that really still exists to today. And so this is important to know who they were, what they believed, and it leads us to the question that they asked Jesus and why it matters. But you have to know, first they make a statement before they ask a question. And here's what the statement was. They said, teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and what they said was accurate, actually. Now, why they said it um, was they're trying to catch Jesus, so they don't really understand what this is. This is referred to as leverite or leverate marriage. And it's found in Deuteronomy 25. Let me go ahead and just read that to you in verse five here. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Or that would be intermarry with um, someone from another nation because they're going into the promised land. Her husband's brother shall go in and take her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now, I know you're dying to understand how this applies to us today. You came here to church today and you're like, man, Pastor Ben, uh, I want to know everything I can about leverate marriage, and I'm going to go home and tell my brother all about it. That's what you were thinking today. You got up thinking, man, I can't wait to get to church. The message is going to be for me, for sure. But let me tell you why it matters. Because when you read this, it's easy to separate yourself and say, hey, none of this really makes sense. And to some degree, I can get that. But how many of you know the New Testament or the New Covenant is built on the Old And when you read situations like this, it's easy to just kind of go, you know what, I don't really care that much about this, but there are things in here that we do have questions about. There was a context and a purpose for Deuteronomy chapter 25, of which the Sadducees had completely lost, and we see that evidenced by the question that they asked. So let me remind you of its context and its purpose. So the context is this, when a husband dies without children, His brother or next of kin should marry his brother's widow. The purpose of this was to preserve the name or the legacy of the dead brother to ensure that inheritance was passed on to the widow and also to the children. 
Levirate marriage was a lawful way to care for widows. You say, well, why does that matter? It matters because Moses was saying this to the children of Israel before they went into the promised land. When they go into the promised land, God's gonna displace all of these people. When that happens, they're still gonna live around all of these other types of people that worship other gods and so on. And so they're given an inheritance. Each one of them is allotted a piece of land. And in order for this land to stay within the family and not be sold off or given to someone else or for a widow to be cared for and covered, this is one of the laws that God gave in order to settle that before it happened. Now, again, it's not something that we deal with today, but it is something that they needed. And I want you to see God's heart in this. God was giving laws to care for widows. God was giving laws to care for women. God was giving laws to care about the inheritance so that it didn't just be sold off or given to someone else. The Lord had to be this specific because, well, you know why, because we have a tendency to do whatever is right in our own eyes. And so the Sadducees had lost the purpose of this. And so they're asking an absurd question. This is their question. A man dies without children and his brother marries his widow. This happens a total of seven times. (laughs) That's crazy. Before the, woman, before the woman dies also, and the eighth brother said, thank you. I know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so bad when stuff goes through your head and you got a microphone strapped to your face. I tell you what, the pressure is on, guys. <laughs> As you were. This happens a total of seven times before the woman also dies without any children to any of the seven men. In the resurrection, which brother will be married to this woman. I was reading this yesterday and it reminded me of this question that, you know, kids ask sometimes when they're trying to be funny. Can God make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? You know, have you ever, <laughs> you've ever heard somebody ask that question? Just turn around and walk away when someone asks you that question and then come back and act like it didn't happen. But anyway, anyways, it's an absurd question. Why are they asking this question? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. And when people don't believe in something, they have a tendency to find some weird way of asking a question to make other people look dumb. That's what happens. Sometimes that's what debates actually are. Some debates can be very healthy, but some debates are people who believe that this thing cannot be possible. So I'm going to find the strangest scenario to prove how lame this is and how absurd it is that you would even believe in this. And so they think they're going to stump Jesus, but this is going to be a good day for him and a bad day for them because you can't stump Jesus. Now, if we haven't learned anything except for that, that's a good lesson. So here's what his answer was. Now, this is the way I'm summarizing it. Jesus' answer, you don't know what you don't know. Jesus says to them, verse 24, is this not the reason that you are mistaken? Now, that word mistaken in the original language, it means like, I would say it this way, did you not know you are so far off the beaten path, I don't even know how to help you get back to where you're supposed to be. It, it, the word means to be, to be astray from the path that you're supposed to be on. It's like you guys are talking about something in such a way where I don't even know how to get you back to the truth. Do you not realize how mistaken you are that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they do rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven." 
But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Two things Jesus does here. The first is he corrects the theological error. He's saying to them, you're like doctors that don't understand the body. You're like lawyers that don't understand the law. You miss the purpose of levirate marriage, which is shameful, and it causes you to misuse the Bible. And you claim to believe in the God of the Torah, but you do not even believe that he can raise the dead. This is how bad what they're saying and thinking is. They claim to believe in the first five books of Moses. How do you get past the first chapter and the first verse? God said, let there be light. And as Frank Turek says, if you believe that Genesis is true, then every other miracle after Genesis at least is possible. That is the greatest miracle. We're talking about a God that speaks and light comes into being. We're talking about a God that framed the solar system. And so Jesus is saying, you don't believe that God could raise people from the dead, but you say you believe in a God that said, let there be light. That's crazy. They think Jesus is crazy. They're crazy for believing this or saying that they, you know what he's doing? He's uncovering the fact that they do not believe in God. You do not believe in God. Jesus affirmed the resurrection from the dead using the Torah. Did you notice that? They say they believe in the first five books. He could have referred to so many other places. There is a saying that gets said at times, and maybe you've heard it before, and here's what it is. The Old Testament does not speak of life after death. Have you ever heard this before? None of you. Then I'm not going to talk about it then. (laughs) (laughs) It's something that people say theologically. It's not true. uh, Jesus could have started with Genesis 1 through 3, where it says that men and women were banished from the garden because they could not live in that sinful state forever. This is why they were banished from the garden. Jesus could have referred to the many passages that talk about Sheol, which is the realm of the dead. It's a debated place as to what it is and who's there and what it's for. But nonetheless, there was a thinking about life after death. Jesus could have referred to the dozens of Psalms that talk about people being raised up to glory and they proclaim the goodness of God when we are. He could have directed them to Daniel chapter 12, which by the way is very clear. It says some will be raised to everlasting life and some will be raised to shame. It just states it clearly. He could have referred to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, who literally say that our physical bodies will be raised from the dead. They actually say that. But Jesus doesn't do that. He refers to the thing that they say they believe. He works with them where they are. And he speaks out of Exodus chapter three. He says, have you not even read in the book of Moses? You say you believe this. This is where God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am not the God of the dead. I'm the God of, of the living. How could he be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 
They're supposed to be dead. Well, he's the God of the living. They thought they had Jesus, but they just gave him an opportunity to preach the hope of resurrection. And I was thinking about this today. It's like, you know what? Sometimes we get a little nervous when people ask us questions about Christianity, about the Bible, about what we believe. But here's the thing. If we're following Jesus, we have to see that every question Jesus was asked was an opportunity for him to preach the truth. And that's how we ought to look at scenarios when we might shrink back and we might go, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know how I'm going to defend the faith. You don't have to defend the faith. All you have to do is share what you know. Every time you get questioned on something, it's an opportunity for us to learn maybe what we don't know, or it's an opportunity to share the truth of what the Bible teaches. And that's exactly what Jesus does. The second thing here, he corrects their assumption about the resurrection. Here's what they assumed. They assumed that the resurrection was simply a continuation of what life is like now. They also assumed that every relationship in this life will continue to be the same as it is in the next one. And their view of heaven was no different than their view of earth, which was sad and misguided. I, I don't know if you thought through this before, and this is one of those passages we kind of skip through, but Jesus is absolutely saying several things that are relevant for us. Now, I have to admit before I go back to what he said, I've been asked a number of questions uh, that this touches on. And I'm going to tell you up front, I'm not going to answer all of those today. Uh, some because I can't and nobody can. I can speculate. And so I might try to do that a little bit. There might be no harm in that as long as I tell you I'm doing that. Amen? Amen. Not very much agreement there. Okay. Here's some questions that I get asked, um, not every week, but every now and again. Will those of us who are married in this life stay married in the next life? That's, what, that's a question that I get. The second one is, will people have sex in heaven? So if you have a child in the room, um, you get to answer that on your way home. <laughs> Maybe it's an opportunity to talk to them about sex to begin with. Maybe you haven't, haven't done that. You might want to might want to do that. Uh, but anyways, um, will we uh, be married in the life to come? Here's what Jesus says. Number one, he says there will be a resurrection. He makes it really clear. Number two, he says there will be no marriage relationship in the next life as we know it. Now, every now and again, as a joke, you hear somebody say, well, if I can't be married to you in heaven, then I don't want to be there. And let me just tell you, don't ever say that. <laughs> don't ever say that in your life. Uh, if you just want to tell your spouse you love them, just tell them you love them. But don't, don't intrude on uh, the, these eternal things that we uh, don't know how to talk about. You understand? I just, I just don't want to go if we're not going to be together, you know. Uh, Jesus says this. He says, here's what it's going to be like. You don't understand. He said, it's gonna, you're going to be like the angels, he didn't say you're going to be angels. <laughs> a couple of you were like, so yes, I want to be an angel. I want to fly. And uh, you know, I love Valentine's Day. You know, no, we're not, you know. Yeah, we don't believe those are angels, guys. That's a Gerber baby, okay? Uh, anything wearing a diaper, shooting an arrow, okay, kill it. It's not from God. It's not from the Lord, okay? You know, it's like Legolas. You just want to get rid of that thing. That is not from the Lord, you know? And I'm just tired of people mischaracterizing angels. Angels are fierce, man. When angels show up in the Bible, uh, two things happen. Men fall to their face. Women keep talking. I'm pretty sure that's a, <laughs> it's 
true. <laughs> it's true. You know, it's men. Men fall. They do. I, I can prove it. You know, it's like Mary just keeps, Mary's like 15, and the angel shows up, and she's like, how am I going to know this is going to happen? <laughs> it's like, I am Gabriel. You know, he's like, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, you know. But every man was like, poof, you know, he couldn't even talk. Just say, do not be afraid, you know. You read it for yourself. This is funny, but I actually read these references. I didn't believe it. And then I started reading them going, wow, this is, men and women are different. That's why women, that's why women bear children, you know, because they're stronger than men. It's the truth, you know. And then they go through other things later in life. I was talking to somebody about that earlier. I'm like, there's a reason. It's because women are, um, you know, all right. So, you know, so what I'm trying to say today is... In some sense, we will be like the angels of God, the real angels of God, which means this, no procreation, it will not be needed. We will never die. There will not be marriage as we understand it, and there will not need to be a sexual capacity. And so this is what I believe that he's talking about. They will not be married or given it in marriage. So when we say, till death do us part, in this life, we actually mean it. So you might ask the question, will I know my spouse in heaven? And here's my answer. I'm speculating, but this is actually what I believe. I believe that we're not going to go to heaven if we believe in Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus, we're not going to get to heaven. And it's like this, this big crowd of people. And everybody kind of randomly knows everybody. I don't know what your picture is, but that's not what it's like. I believe that whatever that we have in this life, the relationships that we have, whether that's marriage, kids, um, grandkids, uh, family, friends, and church, like Northwest, I believe we're going to know, we will know each other in heaven. But I believe that everything that happens there will transcend and be far better than whatever we know here. Marriage covenant will not be a thing in heaven because the relationship that we will have with our loved ones and our spouse and our kids will just be better. Don't you believe that everything about the next life in being with God is just better than everything that we know in this life? So trying to use human words and human institutions and things that God designed for this life to try to explain the next life is impossible. It's impossible. And so this is what we have to know. It will just be better. And so don't argue with me, argue with Jesus. It's what he said. But let me, let me help you a little bit with uh, words from Jonathan Edwards. He's a great preacher and missionary, and here's what he said. In heaven, our glorified spiritual bodies shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are only capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in our mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure. Anything that we think of that's pleasurable here, that's right or righteous, it does not compare to what God has prepared for us in the life to come. It just doesn't. So there are no words to articulate what this is like. What Jesus says is you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. That's what he says. You are mistaken. When the resurrection happens, there will no, be no marriage or given in marriage for human beings will be like the angels in this regard. Now, I don't know if that makes you excited or, or not, but I have to move on anyways. I got a few minutes left. <laughs> Application points for us to consider. The first from this text that I see is we must discern false theology. 
As Jesus was challenged, he could discern the error and rightly apply the truth of God's word. And I want to share with you today that we need discernment. We need discernment because the challenges to truth are coming. And if you're not acquainted with them, you need to be. You and I need to know God's word so that we can rightly apply it to distinguish between good and evil. And it's amazing to me sometimes how Christians can consider things that are evil as as probably good or maybe good. Friends, we need better discernment in the days in which we're living. When my kids, well, when any of our kids are younger, one of the things that they do is they pretty much shove anything into their mouth. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, You know, my unnamed children, I'll tell on them for a second. They're all here. Um, Bridget and I, we wanted to get nice furniture uh, when, when we moved into our first home together. We were like, yes, we're going to get like real wood, you know, like we, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Ikea, guys, okay? The smorgasbordian, I mean, you knock yourself out. But I mean, we just wanted to get like, I just thought like, man, I've got to get like a nice piece of furniture. Her and I were done. We wanted to get some like cherry wood. It was, it was just awesome. You know, at the same time, we're going to have children. It's a great idea. And so we did. We bought some, some wood furniture. And then what was funny was when the kids got old enough uh, to stand, uh, the next thing I noticed was little teeth marks on all of our real wood furniture. <laughs> And then, and then you go over to like every low window that we have and on our faux wood blinds, there was like little indentations on every bottom blind. I mean, it looked like little tooth marks, you know? And you're like looking at them, you're like, like, what are these little monsters doing? And, and so like they just eat everything. They just shove stuff in their mouth. And it's like an animal instinct, you know? Like they, and here's why. It's because they cannot discern good from bad. And sometimes a kid will put something in their mouth that could be so harmful, you better take them to the emergency room right away. And some of you have had horrific stories like this. They'll just put something in their mouth and then you realize that this actually could kill a child. Like what they just did could harm them indefinitely. And this is why they cannot discern good from evil. How do you get from that place? Spiritually, sometimes this can be the case. We just, we just consume everything. We just eat everything like it's not going to affect us. It will affect you. You can't just take everything in. You can't just eat everything and be okay. You're not gonna be okay. And spiritually, the same is true. We have to mature. How do you mature? You mature by consuming the word of God, by listening to the Holy Spirit, and also by sharpening yourself with relationships in the body of Christ. You know what? Sometimes church is hard for us, but you and I need it. We need it. You need to be rubbed the wrong way once in a while because you may not be right. If you just leave me to myself, I will go down this theological tube where I will come out of the, I will come out of the room and not be okay. I need people to have checks and balances in my life, and so do you. This is how we become mature. This is how we learn how to discern. You cannot discern just because you're smart or you read a lot by yourself, or you're really discerning. Discernment comes because we have checks and balances with one another. So it's God's word, it's God's spirit, and it's God's people. And through those those three things, we grow up and we become very discerning. Sometimes people will say, God spoke to me and God didn't speak to him. 
Sometimes people will say, this is what the Bible says. And it's not what the Bible says. And that's why we need community. One of the reasons why we need to learn how to discern false theology. And that's what helps us to do that. The second thing is we must live in light of eternity. You know, the Sadducees were hedonists. And that's what, here's what this means. They believed pleasure is the highest goal. Let's just live it up. Let's just do all we can. This is all that, all that there is. If you believe there is nothing on the other end of this life, how do you think that's going to affect the way you live? How is it going to affect? You're going to be a hedonist. You're going to do everything you can to consume the things in this life that make you feel good about your life. So what we believe matters. And it causes us to make right and righteous decisions today. If you think theology doesn't matter, it does. That's why we have to have good thinking about God's word. Sometimes I'm asked questions. Say, Pastor Ben, do you think I really need to know the context of the Bible? Do I really need to study the Bible that much? I mean, can't just I read an occasional devotion once in a week? You can, but how do you think that's going to be when it comes to your decision-making? Oh, it's not going to affect my decision-making. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. You make decisions based on what you believe. And so we have a lot of hedonism today. And not only that, but sometimes we see nihilism. Nihilism is that everything is meaningless. We're just programmed computers and nothing really matters. My decisions don't matter. Nothing really matters. You know, this is growing today. This isn't just a good preach like hedonism, nihilism, atheism, agnosticism. Who can know? Who can know if there is a God? Nothing really matters. What moral standard do we hold to? Friend, you got to lock these things in because when you lock these things in, it helps you to make decisions today. And not only decisions today, decisions today that affect tomorrow. We have to live in light of another life. Our life now is just this much and eternity is everything else. And if we don't live today in a way that has eternal outcomes and consequences, then we're not living the right way. And we're going to make very, very bad decisions. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what God's will is, what God's word is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And maybe drinking's not the problem for some of us. Do not be intoxicated with anything else. Don't be consumed with the world. Don't be consumed with lesser things. Eternity's coming. And we stand before Jesus, every single one of us. There is a 100% chance that every person under the sound of my voice today will die. How are we going to live then in light of that, knowing that Jesus promises a resurrection? And we will rise to receive the rewards for the way that we lived in the body. The Bible is quite clear. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just rise and just get life, barely get in. I don't want that for any of us. How are we living in a way that pleases the Lord? We have to make decisions to push off things that we want to do in order to do things that we must do. We have to do that. I have to do that. Number three, and this is where, you know, you, you, everybody should smile after I say it. You, you need a good smile. You just do. We must rejoice in the hope of resurrection. Rejoice in the hope of resurrection. 
Most people do not think about life after death until there's some specific reason to do so. What I love about the church is we gather around the hope of life eternal. I mean, where else do you go where they talk about that? Where else, what group are we a part of that actually gathers around the reality of what is coming that is eternal and is greater than anything else in this life? Sometimes it takes serious circumstances to provoke this, maybe a sickness or a loss or depression. But whatever heaven is, which I can't fully describe, all I can say is that it's in the presence of God and it's greater than you and I could ever imagine. And so whatever we're carrying today, you have to know this about heaven. And this is a summary of a whole lot of verses. We will be eternal with a glorified body and have no more hunger or thirst or weariness or fatigue or sickness or disease or pain or sorrow, depression, despair, loneliness, sadness, death, and destruction. It will all be done away. And it says that he will wipe the tears from our eyes. He will do that himself. Paul describes it this way, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. He says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Wow. There is no greater news than this. Tell me what is greater than that. Paul is someone who lived his life longing to be with the one in whom he had believed. He even told the church, I'm only staying here for your sake, but I long to be there. We want to get to that place where we long to be with the one in whom we have believed. And when we're there, we will live today like it matters because it does. It does. Why would we not want to tell people the good news? Why would we not want to live our life in a way where we can share the good news with as many people as possible? This is the best thing. And yet we get captured by the world, don't we? The enemy is in the game of distraction. That's what he wants to do. He wants to distract us from reality. Because when a person gets a hold of reality, they're going to start living righteously. That's what happens. That's what we need. God, we need you to do that. I had a friend... um, I had two friends who had cancer. We've had several, but one of my friends who had cancer, some people would know him. But I met with him uh, maybe a few months before Bridget and I came here. And he not only had his diagnosis, but he was going through a lot of uh, different therapies and then eventually chemo, a strong version of chemo. And uh, when I met him at the Starbucks, because he lived all the way down here, I, I drove from where we lived to here And to be honest with you, when we met for coffee, it was really hard because he was a shell of the person that I knew. He just was half the person that I had known him to be. I hadn't seen him for a long time. And so we started to talk regularly at that point, and um, we prayed for healing. I don't know anybody that had more faith than him. I mean, I just don't think you could have more faith. It wasn't a matter of having more faith or better faith. He uh, believed God. He just just did. I mean, he was doing everything naturally he could, but he just believed God, and even as he believed God, he began to deteriorate. And um, at the end, he was uh, in hospice and could only have 
uh, so many people come see him, and he, could only, he only had so many lucid moments. And his wife called me and said, he's asking for you. Now, we're friends, but I didn't think he would call on me uh, at the last couple days of his life, but he did. He had a lucid moment, and so I went to go see him, and I just sat there. And it was kind of wild, you know, to be honest with you, because most of it, uh, he was just fading the whole time. But he would have these really quality moments where he would come to, and he would look at me and smile and say very meaningful things, and I just thought, there you are. You know, there you are. He wasn't fading in the sense that he was dying. He was moving on. He was transforming into another place. And I got to help do his funeral. It was here, actually. We did it right here. And they asked me to speak. He was uh, 42 years old, I believe, 41 years old. And uh, I remember just cheering. I struggled with what to say. His kids were sitting in the front row, and this is just hard. What do you say? What do you do? Um, but I find myself as a pastor, I'm in these moments all the time with people. And I uh, share the ache and the pain that they do in a different way. I, I, but at the same time, there's hope. And I, and I carry that hope for eternal life. It's not fake to me. It, it's not fictional. It's not a pat on the back. It's not some Christian quip. It's real. It is real, friends. It's as real to me right now as it is when I share at a funeral and a memorial. There is no falsehood about that. And you can tell when somebody believes it, when they say it, you can tell that they're not just trying to comfort you, that they really believe it. And so when I came up here to share, I kind of stumbled through my words and kind of halfway apologized. But the end, at the end of it, I said this, and I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me a phrase, and I just want to share it with you as we close because it matters that we have the hope of resurrection, even when we go through deep, deep pain like this, whether it be death or loss. Or, but I said, um, cancer may have taken his body, but Jesus consumed his life. Sometimes doctors will say that. They'll say cancer, people say cancer consumed his body, but I said, cancer may have taken his body, but Jesus consumed his life. And Paul says it like this, that which is mortal gets swallowed up in immortality. Do you hear what I'm saying today? There comes a point, and I got to see that, that which is mortal gets swallowed up in immortality. And then we're in the presence of God. That's what you have to look forward to. Not death, but life. You and I get to look forward to life. I want to pray that that joy touches us, that we rejoice, that we rejoice, that we rejoice. Maybe you're facing a loss today. Maybe you're going through difficulty and pain. Maybe you're grieving because you've lost somebody. I want to tell you something. There is hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest hope that we have. Would you stand? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you today in the name of Jesus. God, I pray in this room if there is anybody here that is struggling with the fear of death. Anybody here that is grieving to the point where it's unbearable. Lord, today I pray that you would exchange it with a hope that only you can give. Father, we ask for that today. If there's anybody here or anybody watching that is struggling with a sickness that they feel like is consuming them, Lord, I, I would remind them and I pray you do that you're the one that consumes them. And we ask, Lord, that you would take the heaviness off of their life and you would exchange it for a garment of praise and thanksgiving. Because even if we don't get what we ask for in this life, 
Lord, you're showing us today and you always do through your word that this is not all there is. No eye has seen and no ear has heard. No heart has even imagined what you have prepared for those that love you. So we receive a greater vision, a higher vision. Impart that to us today in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.